Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2019 festival, journalist Caelan Hogan talks about her book, Republic of Shame, stories from Ireland's institutions for fallen women, with Terry Harrison and Peter Mulrine. The moderator is Dr. Sarah Ann Buckley, and the episode was recorded at Printworks, Dublin Castle, on 18th of October 2019. Thanks very much. Friday night, you're very brave to come out here with us. Um, Just to welcome you all here, and uh, before I give an introduction to the the panel, to just introduce each of the speakers. So we have on my right, Terry Harrison, Peter Mulryan, and Caelan Hogan. So you're going to learn more about them during this session. um, And I think they're the best advocates and speakers on their own. Uh, histories. So as many of you know, over the past 30 years, numerous activists, academics, survivors, journalists and advocates have attempted to expose and unpick the history of Ireland's institutions, particularly institutions for women and children. Ireland was not unique in the range of institutions it had. However, we are very culpable as a state and as a society in the length in which they remained opened, the number of persons who were forced to enter them and the coercive and carceral nature. While there have been many commissions of inquiry and state reports into the industrial school system, the Magdalen laundries, and more recently, Ireland's mother and baby homes, much more work needs to be done to further illuminate the history of this complex uh, issue. And just to raise here, and it might come up in the questions, but there's current issues around the Retention of Records Bill and the current commission. So in this panel, we have Caelan Hogan, whose book you can see here, Republic of Shame. And Caelan will be signing copies afterwards, and we're gonna hear about that book today. And in particular, it highlights the stories of survivors. And we're very lucky because we have a survivor, Peter Mulryan, and someone surviving, Terry Harrison, who are going to tell their stories also today. So I'm going to sit down. I'm going to chat with Caelan. Um, We are going to have questions. So do just wait till the end. We'll try and keep them to questions, not comments, if we can. Um, So... Caelan, uh, how did you come to write the book? So it was 2017 when I started reporting um, the book. I was working as a freelance journalist. I had been reporting in Syria, Nigeria, uh, South Africa, different countries. And I was back home in 2017. And that was the year that the report on the test excavation in Shum was released. that found that significant human remains were found in sewage-related chambers in in Shum. And there was sort of a national conversation, I think, happening around the treatment of women and the shame that was imposed on women. We were looking ahead ahead to the repeal referendum. So it was a really potent time where there was conversations happening um, nationally about the treatment of women and children in the state. And I kind of, I think, realized how little I knew about the institutions. I was born in 1988. My parents weren't married. And there was still a stigma then. And I, of course, knew of the existence of the Magdalene Laundries and other institutions. 
But I had never spoken with anyone who had first-hand experience, who had actually been behind the walls. And so I began to speak with people. Um, and as soon as I did that, I think I realized how recent this was, mm -hmm. that people were still faced with the ongoing impact. They were still searching for answers. People still don't have access to their own birth information, mm -hmm. their own identity. Um, I found out that friends of mine had mothers who were born in these institutions, who'd been adopted through the religious-run agencies. Um, and also, I, I went to a house viewing one time, and the woman whose room it was had been born in Bessborough the same year as me, in 1988. And that institution stayed open until 1998. So this is not the past. Um, this was something with very much within living memory and still affecting people. And I, I was shocked at, at um, the fact that people were still fighting for answers and still fighting for basic information. And thanks, Caelan. And like from reading the book, and we're going to have the stories from survivors and surviving, but you also, uh, you talked to a number of members of the religious orders. Um, do you want to talk a bit about that? Or? Yeah, I think it was important, you know, there's been a, a silence, I think, um, on the part of the religious orders and, and many within the church. And so I, I wanted to ask, um, you know, people who had actually worked in these institutions and, and ran the institutions. And I think there was a feeling that the, the religious sisters and nuns were, were either too old or, or they had passed away and there was no sort of living memory of this. But I actually met um, a woman who was a midwife in St. Patrick's on the Navan Road, which was the largest institution um, for, for women and children in, in this country. And so she told me she, her memory was very good. She remembered women coming with two corsets around their stomach to hide their pregnancy. Uh, she, remind, she remembered one woman who came and had brought maps with her to pretend that she was in Norway. And she would write home to her family pretending she was on a trip in Norway. And actually she was in an institution run by nuns. Mm. Um, so that was very important to, to, to you know, recognize that there's still people alive today that have answers within these religious orders. I approached the Sisters of Sacred Hearts that ran three institutions in this country. And they actually originally gave me a list of names for five sisters who mm. worked in those institutions who are still alive. And I was, you know, very eager to meet with them and speak with them and, and ask them about the deaths in, in these institutions and, and the practices. Um, but as soon as it, it got to a stage, it was shut down. There was a lawyer involved and I was told that it wouldn't be possible. So there's an ongoing silence, there's an ongoing hierarchy. I've had women, you know, um, religious sisters call me and say, I was told I shouldn't really speak to you. So there's still a hierarchy within within the orders. Yeah. And I think, and that is, I suppose in some ways we've been having this conversation for a number of years, but it, as your book shows and, you know, more of these panels and as survivors are talking out more and more, we realise actually how little we know about so many parts of it too. Yeah. Um, and I guess that kind of leads to, like I know you did get access to some archives um, and that's not always, if there's any historians in the room or students of history, maybe it's just how I look, but <laughs> I've gotten a lot of no's. Um, so, you know, access isn't always a given, um, at least for what are seen as private archives, even if they are actually state archives. 
um, access is not always a given. Um, I see Terry nodding because it's not always a given for your own personal records also. Um, so maybe you just tell us a bit about that, Caitlin, how you found that. I mean, I was very eager to try and access some of the archives of the religious sisters, the religious orders, and that really wasn't possible. Um, I approached the Mercy Sisters who mm -hmm. ran Magdalene Laundries in the country and they wouldn't grant me any access except for when I helped uh, a woman who had been in the Galway laundry apply for her own record. She had given birth twice in Tume and was then sent to the laundry um, and they gave her back one line from a ledger that said the cause of her being sent there was because she was penitent twice. So they described her her, child, her two children, her pregnancies as, as penitents. And I did gain access to uh, diocesan records in uh, the Diocese of Killaloe in, in Ennis. And there I found um, letters between a bishop and the local health board that described women as offenders. The bishop broke women down into three classes of offenders. And the third class were described as being of a wild and vicious nature who would need to be sent to institutions run by the nuns for life. There was also um, a pamphlet there from 1923 from one of the rescue societies that was promoting the services that they apparently offered women and children. And they had the case of a, a mother who'd returned home after being in one of these institutions separated from her child. And she wrote, this is apparently her words, that she said, I try to bear the separation as part of my punishment for the cruel wrong of bringing him into the world, but the one pure love of my life is stronger than I, and my heart cries out for my boy day and night. This was in 1923, and this was being used to promote these services. So there's no question that the nuns didn't understand the pain that mothers were going through. Um, and so that was very striking for me. Yeah, and I think... <clears throat> As you say, and you highlight in the book, a lot of these institutions are before the Irish Free State, you know, um, and we'll talk about the Tomb Institution. Many of them are prior to independence, but obviously when independence comes, they're, they're ramped up and particularly there's Protestant, obviously, institutions that are very relevant, but with the 90% Catholic population, we're mostly talking here about the, the Catholic institutions. Um, now, you've many stories in the book, and I, I'm reluctant to pick out one, but you have <coughs> written a lot about how we now are realising how many deaths occurred, the high infant mortality rates. Um, do you want to talk a bit about Anna Gorman's story? Or I think, you know, I, most people, I think, at this stage are, are hopefully aware of what happened in Tume, and, and people like, like Peter have been speaking out about it and ensuring that it's, it's you know, that there's an awareness. But it wasn't just Tume. Um, there were deaths in, in many of the institutions, and, you know, thousands of children died in these institutions. So um, I spoke with a woman called Anna Gorman, who was sent to Bessborough as a young woman and gave birth there to her daughter, Evelyn. And she died um, just very shortly after being born. And Anne was never told where her daughter was buried. Mm -hmm. She is still searching for where her daughter is buried. The Sisters of the Sacred Hearts have not given any information. The burials report that came out recently from the Commission of Investigation described the nun's affidavit as misleading and speculative. 
900 children died in Bessborough. Uh, we, they, the commission was only able to find the locations of 64 burials. So there are more than 800 children and we don't know where they're buried. And there are still mothers alive today who are searching for the burial place of their child. And this, and I suppose that question, as everyone on the stage knows, and like we can access the death records, we can get access to them and you know, we all can in the room, but it's this question of the burial. It's just, and I'm sure Peter will, will talk a bit about that as well, but you know, it's, it's all very complex, but we need to just dig into all these issues because it, we're, we're living through it as a society, but we do need more and more detail, I guess. Um, well, I, but, I, you know, and it's, it's, it's shocking that I, I just didn't realize before speaking with mothers that there were still women searching for, for their own children where their own children were buried. And, you know, we actually, there was a woman who found out recently from the burials report from anonymized details uh, that um, her mother's, her, her brother um, was buried in a famine graveyard in Cork. And so the state had records on that and they had been searching for years. Um, and Anna Gorman has, she has a grave plot um, ready, you know, with a headstone with her daughter's name, but it's empty. And that's, that's her only wish that when she dies, she'll go into the same grave as her daughter. So it's a, you know, a simple dignity. And it's, as it's just incredibly emotive. It is. Um, I, I really want to get on to yeah. Peter and Terry now. So just, can you, you said that this is really, this is not the past. This is very present. Can you tell us a bit about the castle? So the castle is a, an institution in, in Donegal, um, a small town called Newtown Cunningham. And there was very little information. I couldn't find any, any information uh, publicly about it. So I went to the town and I ended up speaking with the woman who ran it. And she told me, I was sitting in the room with her, and she said, oh yeah, it opened in the 1980s and it didn't close until 2006. I was, I was 17 in 2006. This is, this is within my lifetime. This could have affected me. And it was um, connected with pro-life Catholic pregnancy agencies that would refer women to this home, this institution. Um, you know, that they're called homes, but they, they never were. And um, so, it, you know, I'm so grateful to people like Terry and Peter who spoke to me for this book. And, and you know, it's so important that we listen to them and listen to their experiences. Thanks, Caelan. Thanks so much. Um, I'm going to go to Terry first. So we were talking before this about how to start this and um, you very rightly wanted to get across at the start that this is obviously about Irish society, but for you and for many of us, it's about how women were treated. So um, do you want to start your story in London? Is that a yeah, point? I, I, yeah. Hi, everybody. And thanks for coming. And thanks for listening. Because for many years, we often say to each other, you know, who's going to believe us? And who's going to listen? And they were the silent years. I came out about seven years ago, publicly. And um, up to that, nobody knew my history that I, I hid. And please, I can assure you, there's very few women that I have encountered in the 30 years I'm doing this work in hiding. Um, running support groups for women like myself, trying to learn and help and support each other. 
I ran from this country at the age of 18, suspecting I was pregnant. I just knew I needed to get away. And I got to the UK and I got a job in London and I did find out I was pregnant for real. And I started my bottom drawer, the local shop at the corner, Parma's Green in London. And I was a very proud expectant mum. And for the short time I was allowed to stay in the UK, I was no different than any other expectant mum, 1973. And I bought a lot of lemon and white and peach because the lady who owned the shop, she didn't care if I had a husband. She didn't care anything. She just saw me as what I was, an excited expectant mum. And she, she told me, no blues, no pinks, just in case. So that's when my baby became cuddles, because there was no scans, and I didn't know I was having a boy or a girl. And life was actually okay. And the English system, Dr. Seville, you had to register with a doctor back then, and still do in the English system. So I was afraid to ask him to do the pregnancy test, because he was a nice man, and I was afraid he'd look down on me. But anyway, let's get to the crux of the story is... Caleb just happened upon it there a moment ago. The Catholic Crusade and Rescue Society um, have a, a unit in London called St. Anne's, a subsidiary in Cork in Paul Street, St. Anne's, all part and parcel of the same team of people. And they had scouts out and stuff, you know, and I was happened upon. And they took me to, to Heathrow Airport and he was allowed to go through the customs because he wore the, the greatest uniform of all a black dress and a white collar. And even the Heathrow policeman, even if I'd have kicked, screamed, which I tried, it wouldn't have made any difference. He could have said to them, this girl is from Ireland, she's a lunatic and we're bringing her back. It wouldn't have made any difference. I wouldn't have won. So the first time in my life, I went over by a boat and I was being shoved onto a plane. And to this day, I, when I fly, I have panic attacks because it wasn't very pleasant. And I didn't know how the plane was going to stay up in the air. And, I arrived in a place called Cork, where clergy were waiting for me, and I was driven to a place called Besbury. And the door locked behind me. And for a while in Besbury, I was pretty ill. I didn't know what was wrong with me. None of us did. We were girls. We weren't women. I mean, I think the eldest girl that year was about 20, 13 to 20. And um, I escaped from Besbury on the grounds that I just knew I was going to die if I stayed there. And Besborough has the grounds of, and all those babies missing. And what nobody's talking about either is all the girls that went missing. Like 17-year-old Mary X, three days her baby was alive in the nursery, locked. Our babies were already locked away from us. And she just fell on the ground. She had a clot and she died on the spot. And I'm not even sure if anybody came to claim her or anybody even knew she was there. But what I'm trying to say to you is, I managed to get out, but they caught me and brought me to Pat in Navan Road, where my son, my beautiful baby boy, was born. And again, they locked the nurseries. We were only allowed to see them at feeding time. And then one horrible Saturday, somebody told me there was a nun from Cork in the nursery. And the minute I heard that, I ran up, but they wouldn't let me in the door. And then eventually I talked the nun into letting me go in to see was my baby okay. And reluctantly, she did let me in. But his cot was empty. And all this yellow that I'd, I'd put on him that morning 
which was just left in the empty car. She stripped him naked. A stranger, a woman called Sister Paul. And she brought him back to the hellhole that I escaped. And to this day, I can't get records of, was my child experimented on? Was he part of the vaccine trials? Anything. And I did try and go, I went back to England. I was given a ticket for the boat. We were always told to go to England because we were horrors, we were filthy. And no decent man would ever, ever want us best to go to be a domestic or something in England. But what they were really trying to do was get us out of the country so that we wouldn't be using our national PPS number. And they were still claiming for us on the books. It was all a money racket. The kind donations that all those wonderful people gave for the beautiful babies they received wasn't called buying a baby. But those donations was what they counted on. And that's what happened in this country. It was a gender injustice. We were vulnerable young girls. We needed our families. We needed our community. And we, above all, we needed our government. But they were paying to have us locked up. I was down as my first offence. Imagine my beautiful baby boy, Niall John Kiernan, being called an offence. Or the act of an offence. He was very much loved and wanted. To this day, he still is, but unfortunately, things happen and, and um, he's just, wherever he is, in a place where he doesn't want to access his records. He doesn't know me. And that's what happens when a forced adoption occurs. No reasoning, no choices, no nothing. I never signed a single paper in my life, but it was rubber stamped should go to the judge with maybe 50 babies and they just rubber stamped them. We weren't even allowed to register our own children. And from the moment he left my body, he became their property. We weren't mothers. And that's why you must understand how hard it is for me to listen to mother and baby homes. Yeah. And they weren't homes. We weren't mothers. That point, and we, we talked about this, and Peter, we've talked about it, but Terry, we specifically talked about, and, you know, I'm a historian, and we often take the terminology of the time. So, tomb was technically a children's home, mother and baby homes, but ye both have rightly said a number of times that this question around labels, around language around gender and discourse has to, we need to start being careful about how we use this terminology. So do, do you want to talk about that, Terry, and then Peter? Or Peter, do you want to come in first on that? Um, do you want to answer it now or do I go straight in? Why don't we let Terry, should we let Terry finish, finish off? Do that, yeah. And then we'll, yeah. you're a gentleman. Yeah, finish that. <laughs> my, my, my journey in my search for my son, to find him first and foremost, if he was alive, or had he been sold to America, because so many babies were. Um, to, be, to be honest with you, it was a long journey for me in silence. And then I happened upon one woman, True Bernardo's, and um, we linked up together and we began a group. And that's how we, we used to meet as, as um, arts and crafts, book reviews, you name it, in hiding. Prostitutes in Baggett Street gave us a kitchen once. We used to meet in there as well. They were very kind to us. 
But you've got to remember, in 73, right up to what Caleb, Caleb is talking about, and yourself too, we mentioned this, yeah. um, the stigma attached to a girl like me to have a baby without the license of a marriage. Mm. But in this case, I think they called it a sacrament of marriage because there's no law in Ireland that says it's a criminal act to have a child outside wedlock. No, it doesn't exist. And so therefore, I, I began a mission and my search for my son led me to, into other areas. And that's what keeps me going. I've been part of so many reunions. I've been honored. And I often go home and sob myself to sleep because it's never mine. And as, as the clock is ticking, my son is 46 years of age. And I know I'm on the latter end of life. And I don't know, none of us know. But the one thing they could never take out of him was my genes. And that's now, that sustains me. I'm part of the collaborative forum. And we're working very, very hard on the terminology. Yeah. And the word birth mother is the worst thing anybody could ever say in my company or many of the mothers in my groups. And we were mothers, mothers, mothers. And that's part of it too. And we didn't give our babies up. They were taken. Yeah. It's a huge difference. So there's lots of the language that we need to change in order for us to educate the people of this country and worldwide. Because it just didn't happen in Ireland. It happened in a lot of places where religious orders were, yeah. you know. And yeah. it's very important to us to impart as much as we can of the truth. And people like Sarah and Caelan help us every time people like this do something like this. They are helping us to come out with the truth of our real history. And that helps to heal us as well. And I, I can't say enough about what's been done and the commission. Um, 70 years, too late, but 70 years is a long time. I've one woman, woman woman in my group and she's 86 this year her son is 70 I mean that says it all doesn't it she's only 70 years waiting on somebody to say I'm sorry it should never have happened thanks, thanks Terry mm -hmm. um, we learn a lot more from you by the way <laughs> so um, uh, Peter as Terry mentions the son <laughs> yeah um, do you want to tell us your story and yeah. especially your your mother and your, your sister. Sure, yeah. Uh, my name is Peter Ryan. My story is a three-pronged story. My sister, who I never knew I had, getting to meet my mother, was denied that for so long. And my own story, it starts with 1949, the year I left the institution in June. Now, at this point, I would like you, you just imagine the lights went out here all of a sudden, like that, okay? Where are you? Darkness. You're feeling your way around in the dark. That's what happened to me in, in, 60, uh, in 49. I was going to this big black world. Nobody tell me who I was, what I was to educate me. No one had respect for us, who we were. No kindness shown anywhere. 
I left at home, as I said, in 49, brought to a farm, farming community, which was not suitable for any person or not own a baby. In that home, an elderly woman looking after me, supposed to be my mother, I suppose. And uh, I was boarded out there, so the treatment that was dished out to me was inhumane. Her son, who wasn't married, was in his 50s, was cruel. And very, very cruel to me. I was used as a slave in that house from early morning to dark. Education did not come into it um, whatsoever. Simple things I couldn't even use. There was a dictionary, in the, an old dictionary in the house, and I was afraid to look at it. That fear was in it. I, the beatings I got was horrendous. When I were being beaten, for what I do not know, not to this day, uh, my foster mother would say to him, leave him alone, someday you'll be glad to have him yet. And when I heard that, at least somebody was kind to me, you know. But she was old and frail, she wasn't there to look after me. I had to look after her. I went to school with dirty clothes, no ways of washing, no electricity in the house, so I had no chance to do any study in the evenings. But anyway, I wouldn't have time to do it because we're doing the farm work. And the torture I got would be, I don't know what it was for, he would take off my clothes and smack me with his leather belt. There was often, often marks of the buckles on, on my bum and my legs. And then when the summer come, he would use nettles on me. For what to this day, I just don't know. Just imagine a babe being packed down his, my pants, nettles. I'll never, ever forget it. And all I was afraid of, summer's coming, and this is what I would be getting. Another time, I was only about five, I would say, I was put into a canvas bag, and he put me up on his back, and he said he was putting me into a bog hole. The bog was only about a mile away, half away. So he walked down the road, and all of a sudden he stopped and let me out. I don't know why. But I had a good idea where I was going because the year that I came out of that institution in Chum, I was only four and a half. I was brought to the bog, introduced to the bog work. And while I was there, I walked straight into a bog hole. I went up to there, had a scream to be taken out. I, probably, I was probably from the bog for the day, which I didn't mind that. But the fright that I got that time, and to think a year or so later, he would put me into a bag and say, I'm bringing you to that bug hole again. Like, you know, it was just horrendous. I don't want to keep going on. I've got to talk for the night about different things in my life in that area. But uh, I want to speak about my mother, who I've been looking for for so long. At 19... I searched Galway to ring up the Galway County Council and the hospital area there, and they said they had no records of me whatsoever. I was about 19. 
when I go anywhere around maybe to local dances or anything, or going to matches, what I would look out for, an image of myself, of somebody I could recognize could be a cousin or my father or mother, like, you know? And uh, that's the way I went around. Again, feeling in the dark, getting no help anywhere, you know? It was an awful existence. And at school then, uh, used to get hammered because I hadn't had my homework done. No lights in the house, no time to work. But I had to accept it, it happened. Just, I often drove for penance, that's what I did. When I was about nine or 10, uh, we'd all learn enough to, for serving mass, how to serve mass in Latin. But I was told, uh, I didn't know it, so I couldn't serve mass. But I found out in my wisdom later on that none of us in Ireland as a group was allowed to serve Mass. Why? Because our parents weren't married, weren't allowed into, onto the altar. So this is so, so degrading. So we were around, like, we couldn't look up, nothing to look up. The only time I, I would look up in the sky was be after I'd get in a beating in the house, I'd go outside, walk around the house at night time, See, thinking where I was from, I'd say, am I from that star area where I was? You know, it focused me into one area, and that was to Galway. Every time, divine inspiration, mm. yeah. And it was there that I met my mother, eventually, in 1975, uh, <coughs> spring of 75. I'd been looking for her, so... Because years were, were to Kathleen and myself were getting married, so we had to have the long birth cert and all that for the church. And uh, we, we, we eventually found it anyway. And it, it gave the area where I was born in, in Galway. So we, we, we tracked that down anyway to the local priest in the area. He told us where to go, so we went to that priest and he said, he met us and he said, uh, what do you want for like? And he says, especially to Kathleen, uh, my wife, and uh, he says, is this, he knew, he saw an engagement ring on her finger, and he says, he's pushing this light, you know. So he says, well, it's not, we won't get married, we need it, like, you know. So with that, he turned his heel and went into a room and came out with a ledger, not long gone, and he had it. And there I found my mother's name and the area where she was from for the first time, after all the years we were searching and searching. So uh, eventually we got to where she was. She was in the, in the laundry in Galway, mm. the, the laundry. And the existence and the life she had there was so cruel. She was treated like a slave, worked there for years. Uh, she would have been 45 years in the institution just because she had me, yeah, I was married. And uh, she, she was, the way she was punished there, uh, when I went in to look for us uh, in the laundry, uh, I met the, uh, uh, the, the Reverend Mother, and I said I was looking for my mother, and I gave her my name, and uh, she says, uh, you won't be able to meet her this week, another week, a couple of weeks anyway. And by the way, when you come the next time, don't look for your mother, it's your aunt you're looking for. Uh, and you will be her nephew. And it was a female, to be your niece. 
I couldn't understand it, but I accepted it and went off and came back kind of two weeks later and uh, I was introduced to her, this woman. I thought she was at least 75 years of age. Actually, she was only 65. Mm. She looked so weather-beaten and frail. And, you know, I went down, around the place, walked her head down. I, I understand since, I understand since why. Uh, there were there, there was a big number of women there and they were crucified in there. They weren't even allowed to talk to one another, not communicate to anybody. It was all work, work, work. And uh, it, was, it was terrible. And our, our, our feet were all blue and blisters from what she was at, the washing stuff that we used for washing that time. There was no electric washing meter and washing machines like that. No, it was the, the old washboard used. So it was obviously, that's what destroyed our, our feet. Absolutely, it was horrible to look, look at. She was very, very withdrawn into herself. Like when I met her, she, she very, very little talk from her, uh, very cold. Mm. But um, I was only allowed about six or seven minutes with her. They got a, got a cup of tea and uh, biscuits. And uh, of course, it's a small little room we're in and door left open, so we couldn't talk. What, what questions I would love to ask, I couldn't because I knew there was somebody listening. So I was only allowed a few minutes with her. And I said, uh, or any time I came back, all I was out increased to 10 or 15 minutes, you know. So then in the summer came, I wanted to bring her out for longer. So I brought her out to the beach in Galway. And uh, that was supposed to be nearly 12 or 13 months afterwards. And I had our oldest daughter with us. She was only very, very small. And uh, we're sitting down on the wall at the beach, and uh, I, I, I just handed the baby in her, in her lap. It was the first time I saw her smile in 12 months when she took the baby in her hand. It brought back memories to her. She lit up, absolutely lit up, and I have photographs of that. Uh, as I said, our, our communication skills were very poor. Like, I was afraid to ask Grantham, you know, and she wasn't saying much either, like, because she, that's, that's the kind of institution they're in. They weren't allowed to talk to make friends or anything like that, you know. But um, uh, later on then in life, in um, uh, 2016, I discovered I had a sister I never knew about. A sister who was 10 years younger than me. She was born in 1954, and she only lived nine months. She was born a health, healthy baby, very healthy baby, but still she, she, was, she, died, she was dead in nine months and on her death record was she died of convulsions. I looked for a medical record of her and uh, the only thing was on it, Biner Rabbit was at her baptism and, and uh, death. That's who certified it, Biner Rabbit, who worked as a slave in the place. I was expected to be a nun or somebody, or a nurse or a doctor, no. Not at all. This minor marriage was used in everyone's mm. certificates. I just can't get my head around why that was done, you know. But I, I don't know where she is, Sonny. I've been hearing she's possibility being in that sump uh, sewage tank in June. Yeah, that's what we're told. But I think she could very easily be sold off to America. If she was a healthy baby, 
and healthy babies they would get money for, like, you know, and those, at that time, an awful lot of them were sent to America, sold to America, and uh, they made great money on the nuns, the church. Um, there was money in that, in that record, big time. It was, um, it was just horrendous, like, you know, and I just don't know where she is, and, I, and, I, and I'm asking and asking, looking for her files and where she is, and I'm refused us and I've been to the high courts for eight sessions in the high courts and told uh, they get my files and that's uh, uh, three years ago now I still have no heard nothing you know still waiting and, and and that's for your own file for my own file yeah I want to know where she is because I could, like I, I could be meeting in the street anywhere in New York England anywhere you know be hoping I would come across her it's just vanished out of the face there. No record whatsoever. I just hope she's not in that separate tank, like hundreds and hundreds more, you know. Because uh, they, they, they won't, uh, take, they're not bothered worrying about us at all. Like if there was, if you found a strange animal or little animal or a bird in your garden, you report it and there'd be a big investigation. After the body found somewhere else in the bog or somewhere anywhere in the country, Big investigation. The whole area would be closed off. Preservation order put on it. Nobody to go near the place. Yes, tomb is wide open to the elements there. Anybody can go and go out there. Kids playground right beside, and they're in there playing on that site with up to 800 babies. Like you know, no respect whatsoever shown for those little angels, like in that unconsecrated ground there. It's unreal. The Catholic Ireland. How are you? And they preach from the preach from the altar then how we should live, how we should treat others. And the way they did it, like, you know, the state and the church. Why they did it, we'll never, ever know. I won't, I think, anyway. Thank, thanks, yeah. Peter. Thanks, Peter and Terry. Um, Um, maybe we, we might take a few questions if that I, I'm looking at red t-shirts if that's okay and then we'll we'll get some final uh, the final word yeah. from our yeah. three speakers um, so if there's we'll try and keep it to questions if we can that's the only thing I'll ask because I'm sure we all have there's so many personal stories but um, we'll just take a question here this, um, thank you very much for your most heart-rending uh, story um, I really feel the only question, I hope you don't mind me asking a question, uh, because, I mean, it's so heartrending, that's where we all are at. However, I'd love to know, have any of you, all of you there, any views, because we never hear any mention of the grandparents, of the parents of your mothers or fathers and so on, and fathers for that matter as well, but we never hear any mention of... I, I maybe in uh, it's Peter, isn't that right? In your case, maybe you didn't know your grandmother by the sounds of it, but or know of her. But I'm just wondering, why did the parents send them away, or let them be sent away, or not insist? None of them, or very few of them, is from the stories we hear, figure in the stories. The parents of the mother. Can I just say to you, yeah, the families? Do you want to take that? Can I just yeah. um, go back on what you just said? If you bear in mind, I had left my family home in Dublin. I had taken a boat 
to the UK and I was working in Palmer's Green in London. I was not even in Ireland. My parents didn't know where I was being sent to. The Catholic Crusade and Rescue Society took girls out of England, Wales, Scotland, anywhere they could find them. And they imprisoned us in these institutions. So when my mother was informed of where I was, she was the only one in my family that knew where I was. But there was girls in with me, nobody in their family knew where they were. Nobody. So it wasn't the parents as such. In many cases, yes, some mothers or fathers would bring their daughters to these places because you have to bear in mind, as Peter said, it was Catholic Ireland. What, 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 what were these clergy people, only Christians, good Christian people? So the people who brought their daughters to them believed them, trusted them. So did our government actually pay them to take care of girls like me. No care was given to us. We were enslaved. I worked 12 hours a day. And so did many girls. And if you didn't buy your way out, you had to serve three years, even though the state was paying them for our care. So do you see where I'm coming from? It wasn't just uh, the parents or, or the immediate family. I'm sure, yeah. Sorry, could you? Oh, I can't hear there. the lady. I don't mind taking it if you don't mind. If it, that's, you're talking about the Irish society and the role of families. Like, I guess just to back up Terry's point, as many of us know, the stigma that was attached to unmarried mothers, we can't get away from it. And there's a class bias here that's very difficult to, to, to turn away from. Um, there were reports, the 1927 report which is often cited, stated that we needed these institutions for fallen women. It's almost legislation. It's not legislation, but it's almost legislation. Yeah. So if your daughter did become pregnant, um, you thought you were doing the right thing. It was difficult to get into the homes <clears throat> in some cases. There were 20 years where, you know, they were full because families thought they were doing the right thing. Now, some families did manage to keep their... Uh, their grandchildren within the family. They may have lied and said that a, a granddaughter was a daughter. It's harder for us to get at that history, but I, I think the culture that Terry's talking about, like I was born in 1984 and my mother wasn't married. There was a big jump, even from 73 to 84, in culturally yeah. being unmarried. And I think, well, I totally understand that as a society, we should acknowledge are, there is a blame there. I think tackling what were, in many cases, working class families is maybe not, you know, I don't know how beneficial it is, but that's my, I don't know, Peter, if you want to finish uh, off yeah, that or I, would, yeah. I get I get asked that question a lot and it always surprises me because there are so many stories in this book where they talk about the, the shame that was sort of imposed on families and the reasons why parents felt that you know, the parents that maybe did know and, and, and did through a priest or through a social worker, uh, you know, knowingly, they knew that their daughters were in the institutions, but it was shame and fear that were put on the families. But, you know, we talk about that. I don't think anyone is in denial that families, some families knew or some parents knew. And I'm, I'm always asked about the parents, what about the families? But 
families didn't exist in a vacuum. They existed within a society that was hugely influenced by the church. And for me and my generation, I think it's very hard for us to understand the power that the church had at that time and how unquestionable it was. I spoke to a guard from my area who told me we didn't know, and he, he was in tears because he would have known about the institutions. He remembers marching up uh, a person who was arrested for stealing from the nuns, and the nuns told the guards to bring him to them and walk them past him to shame this person. So the power that the church had was huge. Uh, and I can't, or Peter, do you want yeah, to yeah, really, like, yeah. look for the next? Yeah. We have uh, lots of proof to answer your question. The father's name will be written down, and I have proof of that. And black ink marked out. So they were told not to put in the father's name. It was a money game job again. If the father's name was on it, now there was two people to claim if they had property. And this prevented, if they wouldn't be able to get their money of the state of the father, if it was on it, being father of the child, or as if the child inherited anything, the state couldn't collect it. But if the father's name was out of it, they could. And that was done. Several cases, we have proof of it, yeah, all over the country, happening. So uh, there'd the, the be... That, that's what I, I read into it. Like, you know, there'll be other things. Maybe something happened within a couple, and the, the father, say, didn't want to recognize maybe he's a married man, he wanted to be recognized. That happened also. And, yeah. and, but this and, idea of a father running away and, and for good just because he didn't want his, 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 his son or daughter, that's rubbish, right? Yeah. The, most of them would be. A human like no. And, and, and yeah. fathers, unmarried fathers, had no actual legal rights till the Status of Children Act in 1987. Yeah. So also unmarried fathers are a big part of this this story. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I thought you had a mic. <laughs> yeah. Again, hi. Um, my question as well is about recording. And as well as recording, the, uh, as well as the civil records, well, it's actually about were the children in the, that were born, were they baptised? And where were they baptised? And were those baptisms recorded? They were. Yeah. Well, I'm, I know that not all of them were. It may not have been in, in the case of Besbury and St. Pat's. Well, I won't go any further than that. But no, but I they're just... the only two institutions that I can know of from experience. Yeah. But young girls, not myself, I have, uh, was not of a religious mm -hmm. nature. Mm -hmm. um, but other girls would have their babies baptised in the chapel in St. Patrick's on the Nevin Road and also in the chapel in Besbury. And so a it priest. was in the institution yeah. itself, had, but not in the chapel. church, in yeah. the public. No, not a public, public church, but a church, yeah. where the, the, the priest would say mass every morning mm -hmm. for the nuns and the girls, and that's where those children were baptised. And, and those children would be, that baptism would be recorded yes. then in, yeah. yes. in there. So there are some records, but I know, oh, yes. I know that mm. some children were baptised and not recorded. Yeah. And it might be, it's linked, I think, to the parental nature of the situation. 
you know. Yeah, like the only records we'd know we'd have are birth and death records. You're right, like baptismal would not be a definite. You would not have a full run the way you would because the access, it was not the civil record, as you said at the start. So It's religious. Yeah. Oh, it's so important, important, but as a researcher, you may not always find the baptismal record, but you will find the birth and the death record usually, yeah. I guess. Um, yeah, do you want to... I think that woman in the black t-shirt actually had her hand up for ages, so I'm just... Sorry, just in regards to what you said, the best spread, it's very similar to the Hyde Park case in 1993, do you find, where there were so many cases of the death certificate not actually being issued by the nuns? Mm-hmm. Do you find that there is, when you're looking at these research records, do you find that these gaps in there, is there kind of a blatant disregard for actually putting in the records, or do you think there's more of a ministry of error problem there? There is a case... For, for, sorry. sorry, Terry, go ahead. There is a case whereupon you have to remember, going back again to, you know, the, the era of the last 70 years, um, we weren't seen as important. We were dehumanised the minute we got in. My house name was Tracy1785. And from the moment you got in, you became non-human. So therefore, their records were usually scribbled on bits of paper um, if a nun saw fit to record something. And when it came to medical care, if you needed emergency medical care, yes, you would get a real record on that. But they weren't, they never dreamt for a second that we would ever be in this position. That we would be speaking aloud. Because remember, we've lived as offenders, criminals, nobodies. The lights were out. The lights were out for us. And and many women are, are searching for those death certificates for their children. I know that Anne only got the death certificate last year. I remember her calling me when she, she received it through a social worker. And it was just so important to her to have proof that her baby had actually died because she never saw her child's body. And there are many women um, who have not been able to find, find death certs. And there's a real issue with babies who are stillborn because for a very long time, stillbirths were not recorded. There was no necessity to actually record or certify or, or register stillborn babies. So when we're talking about the number of deaths, that could be so much higher because yeah. it might not actually mm-hmm. be including stillborn children. Um. Just the, the woman here and then, yeah. I just wanted to ask, you mentioned about the Rescue Society in the UK. Catholic Crusade and Rescue yeah. Society. Yeah. And why would it that um, babies who were born in the UK, say in the 30s and 40s, were brought back to Ireland for adoption <laughs> when there was no legal adoption here until 1952 and you were fostered Correct. out? Mm-hmm. Um, um, did, the, the Rescue Societies, they're, they're, one of their main goals was to prevent proselytization and prevent children of, of Catholic mothers being given to Protestant families. As I understood it, that was one of yeah. the main Like there is a big, um, I'm jumping in now as a historian. <laughs> I actually have a PhD student who's just finishing up, um, who I will now say, Lorraine Grimes, who's looked at Irish women in the uh, British mother, mother and baby homes. So in Scotland and England, um, because as Terry, as we pointed out at the start, there's many countries as I mentioned at the start, that have these institutions. So she has looked at the Irish women there. Often Irish women went there because you did not have to do two years. You would do six months. You could give a different name and you could have your, all the process could happen over there. So there is another side of the story that we are just learning about when it actually comes to 
the history of Irish women in the UK institutions. But the society that Terry's talking about, we're also very active. We have the records between the Church of England, between also the bishops in Ireland. We have that conversation they're ha having about the Irish women. So many of them are, and we have, you know, Liverpool, you can imagine the ports where it's happening. And they are trying to bring them back. They are, they are actively, um, but there is a power struggle going on there. Um, but it's, it's another part of this, this history. It's incredibly complicated history that we need more research, not less. And just finally, you yeah. said about Liverpool yeah. and using different names. So does that mean that somebody who gets a birth certificate from Liverpool with a birth mother registered, it may not be the correct name? Of course. This is very common. Official documents, as we try and teach any, you know, person who's studying history, official document doesn't actually mean it. It's, it's factual. Um, that, that's why we're, we're, we're really fighting tooth and nail for DNA, for DNA reporting. And there was no DNA in our lifetimes when we were having our babies and so forth. But I do know one man who spent 38 years following the instructions of Mother Certo for his mother. And it turned out she wasn't his mother at all. It's just, you know, that's what happens. But DNA can prevent that hardship. You know, and that hurtfulness, um, and we're fighting to it now for the government to help us with that. So we're going to take our last question, and then I'll come to you for the final comments. With international adoptions, yeah, aren't there records that could be researched, or was were, were they mostly handled from? You know, I'm thinking particularly international adoption coming to the U.S. Uh, would they be handled through the church? And now, can't those records be forced to be opened? I don't know. Well, actually, people who are adopted in the U.S. are having the same struggle to access their records. Um, but Catholic Charities was the main organization that, that children that facilitated these adoptions. Children were often adopted when they reached the U.S. They were sent there by plane and picked up at the, at the airport. I know one woman who was born in the U.S., um, born in Shonras Abbey and sent to the U.S. She has no idea what day she was sent. She just has a court order that shows when she was adopted that side, but she doesn't know what day she left Ireland. And her records are with the DFA, the Department of Foreign Affairs, and we have tried time and again to access affidavits of her adoptive family, her birth mother, uh, you know, as they call it, they use that term birth mother, her mother. Um, but also of the nun who was in charge of her in Sean Ross Abbey. And she cannot get access to those. And all those people have passed away. So it's not a question of these are living people who, you know, who, who are even worried about privacy. She should have the right to access those documents and she's being prevented. So that simple knowledge yeah. of knowing and what I day she left the country. Known about, like in 1988, Mike Malott wrote his book, Banished Babies, and yeah. Conlo Farta has done much investigative journalism on this but I suppose as the panel here and I'm sure the, the the state would acknowledge adoption or as it's called legal registrations is the next that's our next place we go as a society because we don't leave the mother and baby home commission and not go elsewhere I guess in some ways and um, and maybe that is where does anyone want to say anything about 
what needs to happen from here on in. <clears throat> yeah. There's three things I would like to see done. An independent investigation carried out in Chum's site to find out who's there, <coughs> what they died from, was it neglect, starvation, or what? And if, the, and if the DNA is done, there'll be a lot of information got there. So that's why the government is holding back, holding back until more of us go to the next world. Yeah. And that's what it's like they promised this year, this year they would have start in October 2019 to start removing the bodies and doing a DNA. There's no sign of it. All they're on about is this legislation. What's the legislation about? I don't know. All I know the legislation is if there's a crime scene someplace, it slows off. Every little detail is investigated. And the, the coroner is called in. In tune, we are still waiting for the local coroner to come in. I believe he's even been stopped from going in there. Uh, because it would be the natural thing if, the, if there's a crime scene, uh, bodies thrown around like they're in tune. It should be completely sealed off until find out who did this and identify each body, each bone there and, and to find out who they are. Yeah? Thanks, Peter. I'm going, to, I'm going to take one from Terry and then Caelan and then I... Just to follow on from what Peter's talking about, going forward, like um, Vespers uh, was sold a week ago. Um, all of the institutions across this country, Dunboyne, Temple Hill, St. Patrick's, I could go on and on all night. The amount of money they've made from the sales of these estates. But in Besborough, um, there's a lot of children missing. And my biggest fear is that the diggers are going to go in and it's all going to be covered up and forgotten about. And, and it's, it's, it's wrong. Can we not just accept and acknowledge that it is part of our history? It is our history. And it's, this is not about blame. I, 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 I'm long past blame. I'm just about acknowledging so that our children, including my son, will have the right to walk in as a citizen of this country and get his own birth certificate, should he wish to do so, or anybody. I mean, it has to change. And the generation after generation, it's going to have a ripple effect. It's going to carry on and on and on till we accept what happened and move on and heal. And that's what I hope comes next. And Caelan, I'll give you the last. Okay. Um, I think, well, there are two bills that have been debated recently. And these, this is legislation. These are bills that will be passed in our name. This is our responsibility to be aware of, of what is happening in our own time and in our own name. One is the, the adoption bill, which... Um, was recently stalled um, because it was there was huge backlash because it's still not giving people who are adopted through these institutions, people adopted in this country, the you know unquestionable right, the statutory right to their own birth information, to their birth certificate, to their own records and their own identity. I know a woman, the woman I mentioned, born in 1988 in Bespra, she's only started to trace her mother. And uh, she's looking at a three-year waiting list for that. Um, so there are people only beginning to search, and they need the right to their own identity. The second is the retention of records bill, um, which is due to, I believe, 
come before government uh, soon in November, and that is to seal the records of the Ryan Commission, Commission of Inquiry into Child Abuse. And there's a real concern about the, the sealing of records, the redaction of records, uh, closing down access to these important archives and documents um, that, that people need access to their own documents, but it's also important that researchers and historians can have access. Um, yeah. So these are two things that are coming up very soon that uh, please be aware of and, and contact your TTs yeah. about if, when it comes up. Uh, there, there, there is changes we can make and things we need to be aware of. And yeah. it's important we listen to people like Peter and Terry um, and so important that their voices are heard. Even and if it comes you. up around the time of Brexit. You yeah. thought you'd get one yeah. talk without a mention of Brexit, but yeah. no, you got to have some Brexit. Um, just to, to uh, thank our speakers, um, Caelan will be outside uh, signing books and uh, Peter and Terry will also be around to, to chat to people. So thank you for coming out on a Friday night. Thank you very much. To hear these thank stories you. and yeah. thanks for our speakers. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. 